the Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Hello, and welcome to the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. Today we'll hear from Christy O'Neill, an instructional leader from Southwest Sydney in New South Wales, Australia. Christy has been helping teachers meet the needs of students by using learning sprints for the past few years. She has special insight in how to get into classrooms and move student learning forward. Her success is due to a balance between building relationships and using data to inform practice. Christy's truly doing the work she talks about, and as a practitioner, the suggestions she makes have been honed through trial and error. You can learn through her and the teacher she works with's hard work. Here's my conversation with Christy O'Neill. Hi, Christy. Thanks for agreeing to speak with me today. No worries. Thank you for having me, Corey. Yeah, no problems. Well, let's get right into it, and I want to start with something that's... um, Maybe maybe not the main uh, focus of our conversation today, okay. but to tell me about your three chickens. <laughs> <laughs> My three chickens. Okay, well, I don't actually even know the proper names of the chickens. I just know that two are brown and one is charcoal. Uh, so don't ask me for anything scientific, but... My husband has always wanted chickens. He is a country boy. And uh, we live in a semi-rural town in southwest Sydney, Australia. And so we caved in and he's made this magnificent uh, chicken shed that he's incredibly proud of. And so we have their three names are uh, Oprah, uh, Frida and Princess Leia. Um, shout out to Star, my Star Wars fan, my eldest son. <laughs> uh, and we named them after three powerful women. I love that story. Yeah. I love how you guys named them after three <laughs> powerful women. And um, and that kind of does transition us, imagine it or believe it or not, into our, our maybe our education story. So um, let's talk about, speaking of powerful women in education, I, I absolutely <laughs> consider yourself a power, powerful woman in education. And tell nice. me about how, how you came to be a teacher. A lot of people have a story where they, they feel a calling Mm. Or they they've known for a uh, they knew for a long time that they were going to be a teacher. Mm. Others kind of discover that this is something that they want to explore through mm. an experience. How how did you become a teacher, or what led you? Well, to this? I actually never wanted to be a teacher. It wasn't um, really something on the cards. I actually had no idea what I wanted to do, which was the problem. And uh, being the type of um, directionless teenager I guess I was at the time um, and very easygoing and laid back. Um, I'd done quite well in school but really just did not know what to do and my mother said why don't you do occupational therapy and I said okay. So I went to uni, I did a year and a half of occupational therapy and I remember um, uh, holding up a an arm in my musculo, you know, musculoskeletal um, prac and I just 
thought, what on earth am I doing? I do not enjoy this at all. So then I had like this quarter life crisis and chopped my hair, um, you know, right to my chin. Um, you know, those moments where, you know, you kind of go kind of crazy because <laughs> you don't know where to go. <laughs> and um, so I kind of looked at my options and um, yeah, thought, well, you know what, I'm going to give teaching a go and, and see um, how I go in that. And you know, uh, at uni, I, I was still. I think I still was really unsure. But it wasn't until I actually stepped into the classroom when I thought, "Wow, you know, you have these human beings in front of you. They're looking at you with those wide eyes, and you think, oh, my gosh, these guys are in my hands, and I've got to do something with it.' You know. And I've always been, um, I think, a creative person. I've always been a uh, like, yeah, a, a frustrated. Uh, performer I guess mm-hmm. or an over actor my friends would say mm-hmm. um so yeah I kind of really zoned that into um teaching and then ended up loving it so much that I started on the leadership route that's excellent well that's a <laughs> again a nice transition because right now tell me about your role as an instructional leader I think that's the official title now yes. uh, in North America we don't really have um, it sounds like an instructor leader in the the role that you have that defined role. So maybe mm. talk about what that is, what what you do, sure. and even maybe talk about what you've what you've maybe learned in that role. Okay, all right. Well, uh, an instructional leader is a deputy principal uh, role, and it is solely on curriculum. So. Uh, we are appointed to schools that are considered complex in New South Wales and we are predominantly heavily involved in the southwest um, Sydney. Uh, we have, um, you know, high de- uh, populations of refugee, uh, multicultural uh, complexities, uh, low socioeconomic status, um, high uh, second English learners. Uh, all of these types of things are impacting uh, on our results. And um, so the... We had this literacy and numeracy strategy the government did in 2012 and New South Wales' response to that was to inject this significant amount of funding into this instructional leader role. So what we do is we are appointed to schools we work in the first three years of schooling uh, and it's around early intervention and we have four main roles. Uh, the first one is around the early identification of students that are at risk of not meeting end of year benchmarks, uh, the monitoring of those students, uh, the... Uh, implementation of appropriate targeted interventions for all students and uh, the differentiated professional learning for staff according to need and con- and yeah and you work across multiple schools so how um, many schools do you are you are you working with I don't uh, work across multiple schools okay. I'm attached to one school right uh, I'm in one of the most complex schools in New South Wales where we actually have two instructional leaders um, solely working in K-2, but there are different models. So there are some at an assistant principal level. A lot of the semi-rural schools uh, are assistant principal level. Um, There are some instructional leaders that only have 0.6 or 0.8, but common practice is principals to kind of fill that role and create it as a full-time one. Uh, and there's some instructional leaders that work across many, like not many, a few schools. And it's usually the ones that are quite small. Right. So, I mean, you're working with these teachers, developing practice. Um, sounds like some, some uh, serving a population that's a bit higher needs and everything like that. How, how do you go in and build and work with those 
teachers. I mean, I can't imagine that all of them are, are inviting you with open arms or some of them might be resistant. H- how is it that you can get in there and, and what are some of the things that you've done to, to be able to, to open up those teachers about improving their practice or maybe working on something that you think might be effective? Yeah, it's uh, probably one of the most um, rewarding but challenging leadership roles I've ever been in. Uh, you know, we're, we're not permanent members of staff. We come in straight from this, um, from nowhere into this senior leadership level and it's very clear around our role statement and what we're there to de- design to do. So I think it's a, a few different things. I think the first thing is it's really dependent on uh, how your role is, I shouldn't say sold, but how your role is uh, celebrated perhaps uh, by the principal. I think that has a significant uh, role um, that plays in that the response that you may get. Um, but, I mean, it doesn't matter how you responded when you first come in. It's just relationships, relationships, relationships and an ongoing uh approach to building those and building them quickly in order you know to you can't deliver professional learning you can't make shift without that so what types of things have I done um I usually get straight into the classrooms really quickly um and I do it um really student focused so I uh I look at data and uh I do a lot of I notice things with staff and say oh I noticed this group of students is doing actually really well in your class. Can I have a look and work with them the next time you're doing guided reading groups? Uh, you know, so kind of going in in a really positive light and um, starting from there. And that's how I build slowly up my relationship with, with staff. But, you know, it's also in the small spaces. So it's actually everywhere but the classroom. It's down the hallways. It's your eye contact. It's your presence um, in uh, at lunchtime and at recess. At recess, it's going out um, into the playground and engaging with students. Uh, all of that sort of stuff is incredibly important, and it's ongoing. You bet. One of the things that I really like that I've seen from your work and the work you do in schools is um, is, is impact walls. Yeah. Um, I love that sharing, and uh, I like how how you're really showing what you're doing. Now, I heard that those didn't start off as impact walls. There was a bit of an evolution there. So maybe mm. talk to me about what those impact walls are and perhaps how they've evolved to be what they are today in your school. Sure. Well, the impact walls was definitely something that just was kind of evolved. It wasn't something that I thought of and thought, wow, I'm just going to change this. And it's actually something that we did very much together. And the reason we did, well, I'll, I'll explain what impact walls are first. So impact walls are... Uh, we're a blank space, but we fill them with evidence of the causation of learning in our classrooms. So when a staff member um, causes learning is what we say, or um, experiences a mastery experience where they've actively uh, changed something in their practice and they've been successful at it and they can see it in their students, whether it be through a work sample or a video or a picture um, or just an anecdotal observation. We come back uh, in a team environment, uh, we share it, we celebrate it, and we actually put it up on a wall. And the reason we do that is because we've had this journey around really redefining and building positive relationships around data. Um, I was in a school setting where uh, data was really like the bad guy. It had really, it didn't have street cred. The D word. The D word. 
the word that shall not be named. Uh, yeah, so uh, it's amazing because at the time, you know, we spent this 18-month journey trying to get um, people to use data and after 18 months, we still did not have a really significant shift in the way that um, uh, staff saw data. So we had to change it. We had to, for us, well, it's not a number. It's not a name. It can be many different things and um, let's, you know, put that on a wall and celebrate it. Now, what are the ways that you are deciding what to put up on that impact wall? Because I imagine it's not just, you know, you guys are, are, are throwing different strategies at kids and just, you know, figuring out, oh, this one might have. What are some of the ways that you're organizing that teacher practice and that teacher improvement so you know what to put up on that impact wall? Yeah, well, uh, we've implemented learning sprints, uh, which are short cycles of uh, improvement. And so what we do is we identify some kind of sand outcome that we know we can make shift in students in a short period of time. Uh, We look at what students can do and maybe the reasons why they can't uh, move forward and progress um, to a more sophisticated strategy, uh, for example. Uh, we look at the things that we've tried um, and the things that um, we know aren't working and then we actually co-design something. So when we co-design something, we then implement that into the classroom and give students multiple opportunities to uh, practice new learning and uh, and I'm in there with them. So I'm very much in there in that learning process. And when we identify, so we actually, in our sprints process, we articulate what is it? How do we know we're going to make impact? You know, so it might be that, oh, well, a student is going to say this or they're going to show me this on paper. Um, they're going to be thinking this and I'm going to see that through conversation. So whatever that may be. And uh, then we capture that in whatever way we can. So some types of impact aren't uh, tangible, right? like an observation or a, th- a, a child's thinking. So we actually just put those on blank card and we write things like um, I, by tweaking my practice in this area, I sh- by doing this, I shifted this student and we just put it up on the wall as a statement. That's great. Hmm. Uh, I want to get into some of the, the technical aspects of this learning sprints because I find this really interesting. So, so if I understand right, learning sprints is how you organize the collaborative time with your teachers to work on practice. So how many teachers are you working on or how many teachers are you working with at a time when you're developing this sprint in your school? I've done it in different ways and a lot of it's uh, according to finances or according um, to context. Uh, In my last school setting, I was doing it with my assistant principal, uh, with one teacher, with an interventionist and myself. So that was one way. We do it on fortnightly um, cycles. So this year we're doing it differently. So it's uh, a bigger group. So, um, But we don't have the funding or the resources like we did last time, so we have to be a bit more creative. And what does that funding get you? Does that funding get you more release time? Does it get you more people? Yeah, it gets us a a casual teacher, basically. Um, So the one-on-one we were constricted to because uh, I couldn't get five casual teachers for one day. That just wasn't – we couldn't afford it. So uh, one teacher gets one teacher off – so this year I have to be creative and we're doing it currently in lunch times, which is really debilitating. Like uh, um, 
in BC and in Edmonton, for example, you're incredibly lucky. You've got that embedded collaborative time. At the moment in my new school setting, I don't have that collaborative time. So I'm literally not bribing my staff, but saying, you know what, give me a lunchtime and I'll do two of your duties. And, you know, that's how... You're building that relationship at the same time. Yeah, that's right. And now, what are some of the ways that you've come around? Because I imagine not everyone has the same idea um, to work on. That means that they don't all have the same focus of of what's what what should be the focus of that work. What should be um, the focus of your learning sprint? How do you? What are some of the ways that you've that you bring uh, a team of people? to choose one outcome or one small thing to work on? Yeah, I have um, had experience in that. So I've kind of designed a way, almost a foolproof way, that we can all look at uh, one outcome together. So for me, we are incredibly lucky that we have a common assessment tool uh, and we have it because through our compliances, every five weeks we have to enter data. So I can uh, literally generate a report around a grade and it will spit out um, numbers around uh, where students are at at that that particular time. So because Learning Sprints is not an intervention model, it's actually about um, teacher learning, I look at the students who are just behind uh, a certain outcome Uh, because usually there's at least 25% of students that are just behind where they need to be. So if I look at that across five U1 classes, for example, I'm going to expect usually that there's at least four or five students in every class that is experiencing this type of problem, okay? So for me, I look at grade. Because I have taught my staff to interrogate data accurately, I know that they're going to see the same thing I see. So then we kind of go down to, I guess, a pebble-like outcome. What's this look like as a grade? Oh, wow, we can see this in our grade. Let's personalise that. Which one of my students actually applied to that that Tier 2 intervention? So then we pull out the names. So one student might have 14. One, well, sorry, one staff member might have 14 students. So we narrow it down again and say, okay, well, what three students do you know you can shift in three weeks or two weeks? That's great. Now, obviously you're using this and, and, and you are finding it effective. Was this something that you off the hop implemented throughout your school? Was it something that you brought with you? Or, or how did how did that learning sprints start did mm. you did you start with a smaller group and and because uh, I imagine like anyone I mean you're gonna organize all of your professional learning around one thing <laughs> you must have had a couple of skeptical teachers oh yes I still have skeptical teachers um, well I think for us you know like I mentioned before we have these compliances around data we're state government funded in our role uh, they want evidence of impact so from the very start, we were having these things called data talks or data conversations, which were happening uh, five to ten weeks. And it was incredibly hard and all of us instructional leaders um, that I network with were all having the same problem. How do we do an effective data talk? Do we do it one-on-one? Do we do it as a group? Um, Do we do it cross-stage? How do we involve our assistant principals in it? So what we've actually all missed in that whole uh, thing is a um, a process. So um, learning sprints gave us the process, right? So it was flexible enough to do one-on-one or in groups depending on need. 
forgot my question. No, no, that's <laughs> that's exactly it. How did you? Okay. How did it come to be? And so it sounds like oh, it, yeah. it was you had to be doing this work. Uh, it was a state driven initiative, but you didn't necessarily know how to organize yeah, it. Yeah. And so, so this was a this was a way, or this learning sprints way was the way you organized that. that. Yeah, but. There's definitely, I mean, there always is. There's all, um, there's still resistance. You know, um, I have varying degrees of um, success with learning sprints. I might get more out of more staff um, members than others, and that's a continual journey and a reality of the complexity of our role. We're dealing with human behaviour. We're dealing with change process. It's hard, right? Okay. I mean, if it, if we knew the answer to that, wouldn't our job be much easier? Well, yeah. <laughs> well, one of the things that I love that you talk about, and this is perhaps in that, you know, what, what makes our job easier is that you take in the idea of student empathy when you're when you're speaking about or it's one of the tools that you use to develop the focus of your learning sprint or your focus for your outcome change. Tell me about why you think student empathy is important when you're thinking about what you want to improve and maybe talk about what you've seen in your role. So introducing the concept of empathy, of student empathy with teachers. What do you, what do you think that brings to the teacher learning experience? Mm. Okay. Um, a few different things. Uh, in our current educational climate, there is this compliance around data, uh, which um, is like the least personal way of looking at student outcomes. So I feel as an instructional leader, yes, I collect data and I have to put it in, but I also have to humanise it, right? Um, because in my experience, we don't humanise something. We don't have a connection to it. In um, I think it's important because especially with the teachers that uh, you, they find hard to, uh, you find hard to shift, right? Um, you get that kind of environment of they can't, I can't, he can't, it won't work type thing. So to humanise and empathise with students really gets, uh, you know, our staff to kind of shift their thinking. And um, that's with those, there's a learning tool on the Agile Schools website around the student empathy tool. And so that's the type of thing I would pull out um, with our staff members. And it's great because you take one student and um, you get them to st- stop talking about what they can't do but actually get them or what are they actually feeling and doing when they can't do that task and so you kind of get down to that emotional feeling of it right um sorry i lost my train of thought i was going to talk about something else um Come back to it. Yeah, don't worry. It'll come back. I love that idea. Rigorous and human. It's it sounds yeah. like you were the rigor was forced upon you. Yes. Um, yes. through different organizations, but you your struggle or the, the use of empathy was to make it human to, yes. to to really bring it down to the the individuals, the humans that you were that you were servicing. So That's I love right. that idea. Now, tell me about the party poppers, because I have seen a little sneaky Christy O'Neill pop a popper on unsuspecting teachers, but I feel that there's a story behind that in your work with kids, too. Yeah, it's really funny because that party popper idea has kind of like um, exploded (laughs) uh, with other schools, which is fantastic and exciting to see. Uh, 
But that was, again, a last minute. Uh, we had our first learning sprint and I knew that the uh, the it was coming up to a review and reset to evaluate our impact in that first learning sprint. And in the classroom, I could see the amazingness of what was happening. So we'd had a really sand-like outcome. Um, my year one teachers were buzzing, right? They were so excited. And we talked about what we meant by evidence of impact. And they kept coming to me going, I've got my evidence of impact. I've got it. I want to share it with you. And I said, no, you can't share it until we review and reset. So I thought, wow, they're so excited. So the morning of the review and reset, I just went into my local grocery store last minute and thought, I'm going to make this a little bit fun. And I just brought a $2 bag of party poppers. And so we sat down and I actually sneakily videoed this. I have a reputation for doing that as well. And uh, they were talking through um, what happened and um, showing me their evidence. And then I popped it and I got this authentic you know, kind of fear, but also surprise and this belly laugh, right? So I don't know, it was something I thought, oh, wow, this is exciting. And then one teacher before they walked out said, how are we celebrating next? And that was my challenge. So this became like this um, continual, uh, you know, change of um, element of surprise every time we went in there. So I had about, I probably have enough ideas to get me through uh, three years worth of sprints. That's I reckon. Amazing. Yeah. That's great. Now, I'm sure that um I'm sure that you guys hear about this, but I know one of the big narratives around teaching at the at the moment in North America is around workload for teachers. Mm. And so um what are some of the ways or how is that being expressed in Australia? Cuz I'm sure that workload is is a is a question and what are some of the ways that you have looked at it at, at making yep, this rigorous and human experience but mm. not just piling on and and what are some of the structures or what are some of the strategies that you've used as an instructional leader to to tell or to reduce that burden on teachers? Yeah, I think uh, my biggest learning curve uh, in, since I've become an instructional leader is the acknowledgement of the ever-increasing demands on teachers and how we can deliver professional learning that is not a program that is not something that is blindly followed, but is actually what's already happening in the classroom, but that we can actually tweak it and make it better. So uh, with that in mind, uh, when I deliver professional learning, if uh, it's always with that in mind. Um, for example, we looked at number sense in professional learning a few weeks ago. And so for me, I looked at this scope and sequence. So their scope and sequence, the following week, they were doing multiplication and division. So just kind of little things like that. So my whole task was around human behavior, around how children um, understand the concept of multiplication and division. Uh, and then the activities were all around that to do with number sense. And so they walked out feeling like they were well prepared for something that they were already doing. So kind of being really mindful and thoughtful in the way that you deliver professional learning. Um, yeah. And that it's, they're already doing the work. Right. We're not adding something extra onto them. That's great. You've just completed a bit of a, a visit. Um, and so, you know, you've got the Australian context down, but, but you had a bit of a tour through Canada. And, and my first, my first inclination is to ask you what was different, but I, I'm actually going to take this in a different direction. What did you see as the similarities? What were the things or the, the, the things that struck you about how learning is the same, even mm, though we question. are half a world away? I think it's really interesting how 
we are half a world away. We have different contexts. We have different children. Uh, we have different uh, funding models, um, different ways we hire staff, but we still really have the same challenges. And the challenges in my school visits was around how do we as instructional coaches and instructional leaders do what matters most, uh, which is getting into the classrooms. Uh, you know, for me, that's a non-negotiable, but it's also really, really hard. Um it's putting that in the front list and putting everything behind. Um, it's the complexity in our roles where it starts to become multifaceted. Uh, you know, you're suddenly doing an administration side of things. You are suddenly, um, you know, helping out with student welfare and the um, demands in that area um, because you're off class, right? Um, yeah, so I think that was the biggest um, commonality. I think the second commonality uh, was how... Uh, joyous we feel about the role. I think all the instructional coaches um, I met and a lot of uh, assistant principals and principals that used to be instructional coaches all share that uh, really strong desire to improve student outcomes, you know, which is so wonderful why we can make these connections and continue learning from each other. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I'm more convinced that there's more that brings us together than breaks us apart. And I agree. There's more similarities than differences. So I think that that's, that's great that you saw that as well. Let's move into a bit of a different tact or a different uh, a theme. I want to know, is there something about education that you believe is true that most people or a high percentage of people would disagree with you on? So is there something about teaching and learning that, you, that you've come to really believe in that maybe, whether it be other teachers or whether it be society, does, wouldn't necessarily say that's the case? I believe that we can all improve at what we do. Uh, I know that our biggest challenge is in shifting understanding or, uh, you know, having the same vision around um, improving student outcomes, uh, but everyone can improve and I truly believe that us in my instructional leader role um, we have a pivotal role in that and I guess what we have to look at is that differentiation of expectations of staff um, if I have uh, I know I will have a willing hero in my team that will just like a student who you know has, is a sponge and has a thirst for learning I will accelerate their learning progress but I'll also have a staff member that um, could be can be quite resistant quite resistant, sorry, in nature. But I can honestly say in my experience that I've shifted all of them. I haven't shifted all of them enough, but I've shifted all of them in some way, shape or form. Uh, so yeah, never giving up on everyone. It's, you know, keep at it, just keep at it. You bet, you bet. When you think of the term master teacher, do you have, do you have someone that comes to mind and, and why? Okay, so a mastery teacher that first comes to mind for me, uh, her name's Leanne, and I worked with her for three years, and she started off as a temporary teacher. Uh, she's uh, a more mature uh, woman, so she started in her education late, but she just had this aura about her. She was student-focused. She was incredibly positive. Uh, she did 
she stood up for what she believed was right. Um, and she, in my time that I was there, she went from a temporary teacher to a classroom teacher to an opportunity to work alongside me for a year in um, where I trained her up in an instructional leader role. And now she's an assistant principal leading a kindergarten in year one team and just her, her results with those students and the building of collaborative culture with staff is incredible. Um, so the reason I think she's a master teacher is she knows how to bring a group along and just like my analogy of the cow who climbed a tree (laughs) and Kim the cow who climbs a tree and brings her um, team along with her, she's my Kim, right? And she was the reason I left that school because I knew that I could leave and she would keep the dream alive. (laughs) Yes. Do you think that that's a part of just who she is or do you think that there's an element of experience or or is it a bit of both? Because you you say that she's maybe a a more experienced teacher. So do you you think that it was perhaps her perspective or her lived experience that might have contributed to that? Or do yeah, you think perhaps. That um, I think sometimes it's inherent in people where uh, their outlook on life, um, their positivity uh, kind of, um, you know, uh, pushes them ahead in some way. Yes, she was experienced and um, in the management in like the catering business, for example, you know, so she had that kind of depth of leadership um, experience. So, yeah, I guess, but I don't think it necessarily means, I mean, if you look at myself, I had none of that, uh, but yet I'm now an instructional leader believing that I'm making impact, you know, so. No, that answer, I think that answer gives you hope right because there's yeah. not one path That's there's right. not one set of experiences everyone can take different paths to get to a master teacher or mastery yeah. That's and great. i think it's all in the support right it's i mean the mentors i've had and who have led me to where i um currently sit today like i know who they are i know and if you told me if i showed you a picture collage of them and you pointed them out and said oh why is that person on your who leads you war i can tell you exactly why and then mirror of different reasons. I'm going to get into a couple questions now where they're a bit quicker. So okay. I'm looking for a, a fast response. Right. And we'll see. So what's your favorite education app or website? Oh, um, fast response, fast response. Website. Oh, Teaching and Learning Toolkit. Awesome. Is that Teaching and Learning Toolkit? The Teaching and Learning Toolkit. It's got, if you just search that, sorry, I don't know the actual website. It's fantastic. It has um, meta-analysis of everything that works best and is very teacher-friendly. Awesome. We'll we'll put in the show notes. Uh, What's a book that you quote or refer to or that you have marked up the most? Doesn't necessarily have to be educational. Yes. Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Changed my life. Love, yeah, yeah. Love Malcolm Gladwell's oh, work. Oh, and his podcast. Have you read? Have you listened to his podcast? Is, is great. Oh, how Absolutely. amazing! What's what's one thing that you do either daily or regularly that keeps you well, that keeps you healthy and uh, available to continue this learning journey? Uh, I run or do some sort of exercise, except since I've been here. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe every second day here. I imagine you were pretty busy, yeah. <laughs> what's an organization or a person who's who's really inspiring you right now? What's something that you're kind of on about, you're really feeling like they're pushing you along? Uh, I'd have to say Agile Schools at the moment, only because I've come to the U-League conference, um, been heavily mentored uh, by Simon Breaksby and his work around Agile Schools. Um, and this is 
by by far being the biggest, deepest um, learning curve in regards to getting my story across uh, with large sums of people. That's great. So what's next for you? What's next for Christy O'Neill? What's the, what's the next problem? What's the next uh, uh, maybe learning opportunity? What, That's where a great we? question. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm at a fork in the road at the moment. Um, I think the biggest challenge for me is, uh, you know, there's this uh, predictable path of um, principalship uh, dep- or uh, sideways move, deputy, uh, and then principalship. But I really um, am reluctant to go there because I'm quite terrified that, you know, the compliance and the expectations um, around that is going to drown me <laughs> in a sense and take me away from instructional leadership. And I don't – that's my biggest problem for me right now. Like do I go there and have the self-belief in the fact that, no, I will keep being who I'm being and keep what I believe close to my heart and put that in the forefront of my work or are the growing demands on principles at the moment going to pull me away from that? So, yeah, I'm at a real crossroads with that. Wow. Watch well, I'm space. looking forward to uh, <laughs> to seeing what that is. So um, let's say people are interested in hearing a little bit more about your work or following you. How how can they connect with you um, on the internet or social media? Sure. Uh, Twitter handle is at O'Neill Christie, and that's O N E I L L K R I S T I E. Follow me uh, through the Agile Schools website. There's some learning sprint stories where I've got some um, stuff on there. Or I also have an Instagram account called TeachMate. That's teach underscore M8. That's great. Thanks again for speaking to me, Christy. All the best. Thank you. That's it for my conversation with Christy O'Neill. If you like this episode, connect with the Intersection Education podcast at our website, www.intersectioneducation.com or on Facebook and Twitter. It also helps us out when you rate and leave a review on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back soon with our next episode.